0: meandering in the margins of medicine it's the short code podcast
1: The efficacy of any biomedical researcher is based on his or her foundation of scientific knowledge. Few would have any problem grasping that idea. What's less well understood by both researchers and lay people alike are the stories of the materials they work with. Often these materials are cell cultures, tissues, human DNA. Unlike the chemicals, reagents, test tubes, and machinery used in research, these materials often come from people that's easily forgotten when they can be ordered from catalogs and websites in the way of other commodities. But those people who may no longer live among us have stories. In the case of Henrietta Lacks, an African-American woman who passed away in the early 1950s of cervical cancer, the cells taken from her without her or her family's knowledge touched off a revolution in biomedical science. They've contributed to the vaccine for polio, were the first cells to be cloned, and have been used in a number of cancer, virus, and pharmacological studies all over the world. Rebecca Sklut's 2009 book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, noted that Mrs. Lacks' cells have been used in more than 60,000 studies, and 300 more are being added each month. They are of huge importance to science, because they were the first so-called immortal cell line. Unlike most cells, they divide and reproduce essentially without limit. But though no one in Henrietta Lacks family knew of their existence at first, the cells ultimately became of huge importance to her descendants. We are honored to be able to welcome two members of the Lacks family to the, to, to the show today. David Lacks is Mrs. Lacks' grandson, right? Yes. And uh, Victoria Baptiste is her great-granddaughter. Yes. Yes. Uh, Mr. Lax, Ms. Baptiste, welcome to the show. Thank you.
0: Thank you for having
1: us. Uh, No problem. Well, also joining us are medical students, Allison Pletch, Ebony Jones, and Greg Pelk. Welcome to you as well. Thank you. Thank you, you. Dave. So, Mr. Lax, Ms. Baptiste, uh, before I let these guys ask their questions, I'll ask you to set the stage for us. What can you tell us about your ancestor, Henrietta Lax, and her family in the 50s? Who were they? What were they like?
0: Uh, Well, from what I was told, because I never had the honor of meeting her. Um, was that she was a very giving person. She was a woman first and a mother as well as a wife. Um, She helped transition a lot of her family members that came from Clover, Virginia up to Baltimore um, until they could get on their feet, feeding them and things like that. Other family members, um, my great-grandfather, David Lacks, um, was just an awesome, kind, giving person as well. And I did have the pleasure and the honor of growing up with him. So I, it would have been even better if I had her as well.
2: Um, yeah, like I said back in 1951, Neva, um, she passed away way before mm-hmm. any of us was born. Actually, my father was five years old, and her grandfather was like 17. Mm-hmm. So he's the only one who really knows who she is. But watching your um mother pass away of cancer, I'm sure it's hard for any um child to see. So. Basically, he really didn't say much about her, and neither did our grandfather, because I'm sure that was has to be equally as painful. But mm-hmm. like I said, in 1951, she passed away from cancer. Doctors took a, um, sl- a sliver of our uh, cervical cancer cells, and those cells happened to be the first cells that were able to exist outside the human body. And from that, um, countless medical researches and breakthroughs had been made attributed to her cells.
3: I'm interested in, in learning a little bit about how your family maintained her legacy within your within your family, and how how much of an impact the book was on your family and maintaining her story.
0: I think um, the book opened up a lot of um, conversations for the family and other professionals. Um, for instance, Johns Hopkins Hospital now has a annual Henrietta Lacks lecture, where they honor. Henrietta and her cells and what they've been able to do for science. And they also present every year something new that the cells have been able to make possible for science. So that's one of the things that has been opened up. Um, But previously, before the book came out, there were other things to honor her that had been going on. Um, Like Dr. um, Roland Patillo at the Morehouse College was already having um, a Henrietta Lacks day annually before the book came out Um, we have miss courtney speed Mm -hmm. from the Turner station community who was having like henrietta Lex days um out there honoring henrietta before the book came out but the book has just made it more um open more more people are able to see it by it being a new york times bestseller and all that good stuff a lot of books you know Book clubs and schools having able to read it. So it's actually um, just bringing out who the person was. People are using these cells, they knew Hela, but now the book has let you know that Hela is actually Henrietta Lex and that she was a person, she was a mother. you know she could have been anybody's family member and telling the true story of how you know the cells came about and how it was you know the cells samples were procured without anybody's knowledge.
2: Mm-hmm. And like Victoria alluded to, um, Dr. Roland Petilio, he was one of the first persons who worked with healer cells early mm-hmm. on. So he's been doing honor her for the past 18 years, almost what 15 years before the book came out. The book just exposed it more to the world. And the same was Miss Courtney Speed. Um, 16 years ago, BBC came over from England to ask, do a story on him. He and a Sales. And it just happened to take um, Rebecca Sloop to write the book to introduce it to the world. And we always participated in those events, even though it was small and local, but we was proud of it. Back then, all we knew was, like I said, the hero sales was important and they could um, help cure polio, but that one in itself was a feat in itself and something we was very proud of. And we just wanted to and honored that and went on like that. And like I said, all our family members participated in it because it's something we're very proud of.
4: I have a question concerning um, uh, how you plan to um, discuss the story of your grandmother with the future generations of the Lax family. Do you have? I mean, you guys didn't have a choice on how you learned about mm-hmm. this whole story. How do you feel, or how do you think you're going to t- talk to your children about...
2: Well, we... Um, we our children uh, are very... I was going to say, we take our <laughs> children yeah, with us with everywhere, us to good, the events so and they're <laughs> very versed on what we're what, doing.
0: Yeah, and what yeah. hit Henrietta, who she was, and what her cells are able to do. I mean, I have a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, so they're able to understand. And he has a 10-year-old and a 9-year-old. Yes. And his sister Jerry, she has children as well, and they're, you know, in teenage years as well. So yeah. they're very active currently and and you know, we know that the generations to come after them when they yeah. start having children things they will You Mm -hmm. know, already have this will be something that is still continuously discussed. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I was growing up, it wasn't really, you know, a lot to be said, a lot was not known Mm -hmm. yet. But, you know, they have the benefit of being active in these different events and really learning and getting to see the cells in action and what they can really do.
2: And I know my children in Jersey, I don't know of yours, but they had to do a report on in school and switch them, to, you know, have first hand knowledge. <laughs> my, today, so they have to um, do that. So, yeah, my like daughter I,
0: actually has had some of her teachers come to some of the events. Right. So, you know, it's like, yeah, th- hey, they were talking about school and science. And, like, hey, that's my great great grandmother. And they're like, really? <laughs> you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, so our kids are very immersed in it now. We didn't have that privilege of knowing what was going on until a book, but our kids are very much involved in, like I said, they, we always bring them to our events, so they'll continue on a legacy.
5: Victoria, I'm curious, uh, you're in, uh, you work in the medical field now, mm-hmm. and since this has come out and your family is learning about it, are you the only one in the medical field, or has more of your uh, family become interested in pursuing that kind of uh, career?
0: I'm one of the only ones that um, actively work in the medical field. Um, my cousin Erica is um, a psychology major, so... She deals with mental Mm -hmm. sciences, but I'm really one of the only ones really working. My sister is in school um, to be a nurse as well. She's in her earlier stages than I am, but she's also a certified um, nursing assistant Mm -hmm. as well. So the two of us are really the ones that really are active in medicine currently. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that we don't have any future generations because his niece, my cousin Jerry Lax's daughter, um, Ayana, Mm -hmm. wants to be a doctor.
1: Wonderful.
4: Hmm. David, uh, in a discussion that we had prior to this interview, you had emphasized that what you want um, the world to kind of get out of this experience that you've had has been to recognize that um, patients have stories. Even biological tissues have stories attached Correct. to them. The story mm-hmm. is super important. Yes, is the, is is the impression I got from you that you want to emphasize. Yes, that's something that we as medical students are learning is is very key mm-hmm. to um, conducting a patient interview. Don't just get the facts get the story right yes. so a story right. can be the source of, of mm-hmm. factual information that is important for us to know what else do you feel is found in a story that is that is important as well
2: um basically like i said uh, there's more than just um a sample a specimen because each specimen has a um story behind it and actually just momentarily i was speaking over to a woman who said her stem cells um of a deceased relative is being frozen, and I was like, well, "How you feel about that?" So, and you can see that she is emotional about it. So, it may just be a specimen to me and you, or whoever's working on it, but it's more to somebody else. So, that's why I wanted to get out of me about Henrietta a lack of stories. Like, okay, her cells are more than just a specimen to her family, and like I said, this particular young lady, the stem cells, are more than just a stem cells to her. So. You have to consider that in the scientific arena.
0: And just to touch on that from my perspective, I feel like knowing the person behind the science of it helps to, to give you that empathetic emotion, first of all, to make you really—you you know you're there to help them, but it makes you—when you hear that story, that testimony, it makes you even more connected with the patient itself. But knowing them that hearing them helps you learn things about their social environment, you know, helps you to know why they might be predisposed for certain things, you know, different activities they participate in. This could be why they're having these types of signs and symptoms as well. So I think actually having a real conversation, not just, hey, what are you here for today? you know, but actually learning about the patient themselves can help us feel through, you know, being proactive and not just reactive to certain medical diagnoses.
5: I'd just like to add, um, so I'm a third year student, so we just started seeing patients uh, in the last three months, which has been amazing, lots of fun. Um, and there was a medical record that I was reading before I went and saw a patient that said the patient uh, was a voracious reader, in quotes. And a previous uh, physician had written that uh, in there. And so when I went in, I just sat down and the first question I asked is like, oh, what I know about you is that you're a voracious reader. Tell me what you're reading. And it just sparked this like conversation and closeness mm-hmm. between a patient that I had never met before mm-hmm. and kind of gets at um, what Victoria and David were saying, where once you have that connection, so much more comes out. And then when you actually get to talking about what the patient is there for that day, there is um, a built-in trust
3: and exactly. kind of feeds into that.
1: Mm-hmm. But do you think there's anything in particular that that knowledge can do for for, or that understanding of who the person is can do for researchers, I mean, beyond just looking
0: at it? It definitely can, because whenever you go to treat a patient, as you guys know, whenever you go to treat a patient, you're, you're looking at, you know, what they're what they're presenting you with today. What signs and symptoms are they presenting today? Okay, but in order to know how we got to this point, for them coming in here today to be treated for this, what led up to that? And if they, you don't have this have a, some type of a conversation with them, some type of that built-in trust, you're going to be limited to the amount of truth that they're going to tell you. You know what I mean? Because patients are, are going to tell you what they feel like you need to know. But what they don't understand is that part that you're leaving out, I really needed to know that. Oh, you came in and you're having labor breathing and you're not getting enough oxygen. But you, all you told me was that I was just cleaning up the house today and or I was just sitting around listening to music. But you didn't tell me that you were walking around the house and the only product you clean with is bleach. Mm-hmm. You know, and that you might be having a chemical reaction to that. And this is this may be how, why you're presenting to me this difficulty breathing. Your bronchioles could be inflamed right now because of that. But instead of putting you through all these expensive different um, pre operative treatments and things like that, or getting all these CT scans and, and MRIs and all this blood work, if you would have simply told me, I cleaned my whole house today with just straight bleach, then we could have eliminated, the process of elimination could then occur and then you can have more effective and rapid treatment. So it's important to have those, those conversations and know what the patient was doing before you got here today.
4: I, I'm not even sure. I'm not sure exactly how um, how knowing the story of the person who donated tissue would affect, say, a researcher, someone who's not involved mm-hmm. in the clinical field. But maybe it could, in the sense that um, cells react to their environment. Exactly. Like, mm-hmm. You know, and and one you know one person is made up of, of many cells, and yes. knowing the the environment that that person came from, mm-hmm. the life of that person, mm-hmm. you know, does affect. I'm not. This isn't like voodoo that it does affect what proteins that's right exactly raising. exactly right. That's and understanding
2: of, uh, yeah now I was saying that's why as I was talking to Dr. Collins the head of um, NIH he was just telling me like the genome is important but he said it's also important to the environment of the person that lives in because mm-hmm. the environment has a detrimental impact um, where you live you live in a hot climate you live in a right. cold climate you're in the sun all the time all those effects plays a part on your um, molecular structure and um, how diseases react to you And how you react to treatments wow. So environment definitely plays a part And like um, Victoria was talking about You know, you, the carcinogen and bleach If you believe in that all day It has an effect on your lungs mm-hmm. So it would be more And um, I guess as this tissue Say the sample will go up to different researchers they might, It might be beneficial to them Knowing that this person uses a lot of bleach So they might have a, like a higher concentration of something Or they could see how cells react So Knowing a person's history will help and like I say right. researches in on. It's just a the question of how we de identify right. somebody's sample.
0: And their environment might be the reason why they have certain mutagens and stuff like that yes. in their genetic makeup, you know, because mm-hmm. it's not because oh I was born with this defect. You could have had that just your environment, you know, with especially today with people with the mesotheliomas and all that, your environment you know, has a big part in that. So when you're looking at those cells underneath the microscope, you see, like, you're trying to figure out why the cell is turning out to this. Why does it have the, you know, classic makeup of a cell? The environment can play a big part in that.
3: I'm really curious how your reaction, when you first saw your grandmother and your great-grandmother's cells um, at Johns Hopkins, and what, what was your reaction? How did you feel when you saw...
2: Here, her cells into the microscope i was like wow you know it's like i said like um you know just to see these cells like i was telling in the audience how they would tell you if the, um you put the healer cells in with another cell the healer cells would take over so my <laughs> father would always say she must have been a bad woman in life because she's showing sure up a bad woman in death she take over <laughs> everything in that space so you know just to see the healer cells right there and to see another cell and they take over and i know um a while back, German scientists thought they had some similar cells to Healer that was better, but when they actually um, did the deep scan DNA sequence of them, it, had, it turned out to be the Healer cells. The Healer cells are just so potent that they contaminate everything, and people thought they had a special new line of cells when it was just the Healer cells. And to think, you know, the awesomeness of them cells are right there in front of your face is like, wow.
0: And for me, it just solidified for me wanting to work in the medical field. And like I said, you know, reading through your textbooks and it tells you about all these nucleotides, peptides, and, you know, helix and all this. You're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's interesting to read. But when you actually get to see it underneath the microscope and the movement of it all and how it's actually separating and redeveloping something, it's really awesome. But then to know that that person was related to you, it just... Made it even more so like this. She's telling me that this is what you were meant to do, you're in, you're going in the right path, and this is what you're supposed to be doing.
2: Yeah, for all the comic book lovers, we like, Yeah, we got the mutant genes, on the X-Factor, the <laughs> Wolverine genes. So, you know, that's how we felt too. Like, we got some special superhero genes in us. So, the, in the comic book lovers will relate to that, I'm <laughs> <Not> sure. <laughs>
5: Kind of going back to what uh, David, you were saying earlier about how steadfast uh, the cells were. And um, I remember in the book, uh, Rebecca wrote about how uh, your uh, grandmother was so strong and she was receiving some of these uh, chemotherapy treatments where she was getting um, Mm -hmm. treatment and then going home and still acting like everything was normal. Mm -hmm. And she was a steadfast uh, individual who uh, just went through so much. Mm -hmm. And it was almost as though... um, as we were talking earlier, just knowing about who she was as a person nice. kind of it was exemplified in how the cells acted on their own. And are there any other um, examples of that and stories that you've learned about her that kind of match with the cells? Or?
2: Well, um, basically, I know, like I said, we always say our grandma was a given person. She gave in life. You know, She took care of everybody who came away. When people came up from Virginia, as Victoria said, she would take care of them. She would help transition. She would cook for them. And in death, she still has given. Her sales have given so much to the medical community that she's just a given woman and just how uh, that relates.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, and aside from that, I just heard that she uh, liked to dress. She liked to look nice. You know, she was a real woman's woman. You know, yes, I know I have to take care of the house and the kids and cook, and I'm giving and all that, but I still like to look good at the end of the day. <laughs> so I guess it also touched you to to take care of yourself. You can't really, and this is with people in general, you can't adequately and efficiently take care of anybody else if you're not taking care of yourself first. Um, And I think that was another, a big lesson that's learned from that because you can't take care of your children and things like that if you're not taking care of yourself. And for her to be so attuned, it just showed how attuned she was with her body. For her if you, you know everybody that's read the book you see that portion of the book when she's in the bathtub and she reaches inside of herself she knew something wasn't right mm-hmm. and she was so attuned with herself that she knew where to go to look for it right. you know what I mean that speaks volumes to me because a lot of patients aren't attuned with their bodies like that I don't even know if I am attuned with my body in the aspect where I like you know something's not right and know exactly where to go to find it right. mm-hmm. you know that speaks, you know, volumes to me and just makes me more aware of how important it is, you know, for you to be, you know, active in your own
4: health care. I have a question about um, kind of going along with that theme of, of, of knowing yourself well, being um, responsible for your own care. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question about that theme with respect to... Um, being an informed patient. So I can tell by your attitude and um, just how you talk about this story that you're really passionate about being an advocate for patients when you know currently in your job and in your future career as a nurse. Um, And so when it comes to communicating between patients and doctors, patients do have a role. They need to be Mm -hmm. advocates for themselves and make sure that they're informed by reading everything, asking all the questions they need. Professionals also should play a role. Um, if if you guys were able to put your heads together and design, you know, new guidelines for how to get informed consent from patients that w- weren't just based on documents to sign, what would those guidelines look like? Oh, I think the first thing I would do
0: is just to simply ask uh, the first question: Do you understand what this means? Just asking that first question believe it or not opens up a lot because i ask it a lot to patients when they come into the office the doctor comes in he does his thing this that misses such and such you're gonna have this 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 and this done i wait patiently until he's done (laughs) and he leaves out and i say did you understand what he just said to you and then the patient will say believe it or not i don't And I then give them the option. Once you you ask the initial question and they honestly ask you because they feel like you cared enough to ask me, you know, then I can give you a genuine response. And when they tell me no, then I ask them, what didn't you understand about this, you know? And then when they tell me that, then we have the conversation. And you have to have patience with your patients, Mm -hmm. you know. You have to let them talk to you don't open up the door and you didn't genuinely mean it because that happens as well you ask them a question then they go to to give you their answer then you're like okay well don't worry about it when you come back we'll talk to you no Mm -hmm. you have you open the door just make sure that you follow all the way through and i think that's the biggest thing following through once they give you that trust you open up that line of communication to keep it going And them then telling you what they didn't understand, you taking the time to make sure that they understand, then you move from there. Once they understand what the diagnosis means, now we can effectively try to get you to realize what the prognosis is of that diagnosis. And then once you get that and they actually can let that all sink in, we can talk about treatment, you know, but we need to make sure that you understand all of that before you sign off and we say treatment is what we're getting ready to do. You know, I think that would be the first thing is to to tell them to have the a genuine, honest conversation with the patient and to actually be engaged in that conversation.
2: Um, I would guess I'd say if I would have had to redo it, I would say maybe give them a dirty thing and be a re- re-evaluation Because like I said, if you're coming in with your arm hanging off, you don't care what you sign. You're like, look. Just fix me. I'm signing everything. So it's like, okay, sign him, let him fix everything. Then after he's calmed down and, you know, some time has passed and his arm um, not, you know, about to hang off, fall off, drop, whatever it's going to do, you come back and reevaluate and you can look at what you're doing calmly. It's like, okay. Yeah. And like I said, go through, um, as Victoria said, go through it line by line or check it out. Because like I said, when you first walk through the doctor, there's something wrong with you. I don't care about nothing else but getting fixed. So like, all right, you know, once I get fixed, let me come back and reevaluate. And I say, sure, go ahead and do whatever you want with that specimen. Please let me help somebody else. Or he's like, no, nah, I don't quite like that.
0: David, so. I respectfully disagree with you. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> respectfully, I said. Only because, like, granted, you're coming to ER, your arm's hanging off. Mm-hmm. But they're going to take the time to confirm your insurance. I'm not. So that's what I mean. The support staff, if they mm-hmm. can come in there with that piece of paper and say, do you have any health insurance? Mm-hmm. Then you can take that time to say, this is what we're going to do to secure your arm back onto your body. I mean, right. it just had the conversation of it all. It's a such thing as a verbal consent at that point.
2: But at that day, I'm not thinking about no verbal consent. I'm only thinking about. But
0: once the, once they've done what they've done, the damage is done. You You can't. Go back. It's um, yeah. done. They did whatever. You could you wake up and you have a cow hoof on your arm now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because you didn't want to hear, you know, because nobody told you what they would do. You just said, "Fix me, let's fix it." That's where, like she was saying, the responsibility of the patient.
2: Okay, but to I'm just saying. I'm questions. just saying. But in some cases, you can go back and reevaluate it. The hoof is
0: on there, honey Okay, and we going. It to- is now yours. <laughs> <laughs> and why do you think they have lawsuits and all that stuff? Because people you are not appreciating what they did. But you But at that I'm point, there is write. no lawsuit. But this is because the, you for, told for, them do what you want to do. So what you opened I the I told door
2: for do You know, fix me. I didn't say do what they want. but you
4: said to fix me that was their way of fixing you didn't say how are you going to fix me prior to this interview you were part of a panel discussion and mm-hmm. um we talked a little bit or you did david yes. a little bit about your role as someone who sits on a panel of people that get to i guess decide yes. what research the cells are used for mm-hmm. so you had mentioned and i wanted to follow up with this because i didn't catch quite what you're what you what you uh what's going to happen but you had mm-hmm. mentioned that Perhaps um, after you sign whatever you need to sign to say mm. that you know this tissue of mine can be used for this research, mm-hmm. you can then go back and control um, or be re like a, like if, if if the results of the research are, are something that you don't want known, do you have like an option of going back and well, no.
2: Basically, is I would say you need to uh, try to lay as much out in front on on, uh, on the line as possible because you, like I said, you don't want to hinder science by having to go back every time to um, ask Get for permission because that's going to be that's just going to be too much. We most people understand that, but um, if you take like the Navajo tribe who was supposed to be studying um why they had— um. See, I don't want to give misinformation out, but they were supposed to be studying one thing. And then they found out that they were studying another. So they went back and, you know, sued the corporation and they destroyed the blood samples. Basically, what you guys, you just got to tell people what you're doing up front. Don't have them think you're doing one thing and doing another. And the same thing with the um, NIH with us. They are um, outlining what they're doing and then they're going to come back and tell us again later. Or where they're at and what they're still doing, just to make sure it fits within the guidelines, so it doesn't make um, it doesn't um compromise anything. Because like I said, we want scientists to continue want science to progress, but in the notion, we still need to maintain some level of privacy, some level of dignity for the human specimen.
1: Do you envision that becoming a feature of all NIH? Um, no,
2: no, no. Because like I said. In the future, like I said, it's going to be less and less harder to de identify material, but for the most part, they're going to try to keep your name out of the public. So, oh, okay. as long as, like with us, we are well, I mean, people know us in the black family around the world, so they know mm-hmm. who the heal cells, they know who the genome belongs to. So, there's no level of privacy there. So, this was a unique case. But in other cases, they will try to um, de identify. But as Dr. Collins said, he just said, you know, as time goes on, it's going to be harder and harder to de identify people. So what we just need to do up front is ask them. Ask them if they're OK with this. If they say OK, then, you know, move forward with it. But right now, there's no rules or regulations to do that. But, you know, with science and technology advancing the way it is, right now, um, science technology is moving faster than political policies. So the best thing to do is just ask mm-hmm. and let your patient know what's going on. Okay. So I kind of
5: want to so go back to... We were discussing about um, the difference in information sharing or um, understanding between patient and physicians, and that's something that really interests me. Um, one of the biggest themes I got out of the book was the idea of um, healthcare disparities and the different uh, cultures not understanding or... Communicating uh, well enough with each other, and we, we talked in the earlier session about communication uh, that it's vital for doctors and patients to communicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of those uh, areas I think where uh, the difficulty in communication comes from is uh, lack of health literacy in the general population. Um, I, the term health literacy is something we throw a lot, around a lot. Uh, defining it was just understanding, you know, what um, a vaccine is or what uh, pr- diabetes uh, really means and um, getting behind that. And so I guess I'm uh, asking you, uh, what changes have you seen in improving health literacy or how can we go about kind of trying to work with different communities to improve that?
0: Um, well, I think that it's changed in the aspect that um, more patients are becoming more involved in their health care nowadays, whereas, you know, back in the 1950s when Henrietta was alive, it It wasn't done. It just wasn't heard of. You know, your doctor told you something, and you did it. That was it, because you didn't have the brain span that they had. They were just so much superior to you that you weren't supposed to ask the question. They knew what to do, and they did it. Um, Whereas nowadays, patients are starting to be more aware of their rights as a patient, and they're becoming active in their health. So um, they want more literacy, so now they're demanding it. So therefore, more people are giving it. Which is awesome. And I think with different, um, like medical students and people like nursing students, they have community health portions in your programs. Mm-hmm. You have to go out to the community. You educate them about things. And I think that, you know, you have those students that once you get out there and you've realized how awesome that is and, and it means so much to you that when they get out there in the field in real life they, they become those advocates to make these types of things more broad spectrum and more people, you know, being out there and and getting more assistance to put the word out there for patients. But then now you have um, social media, you have the internet, we have all this WebMD and, you know, people are going online now looking up what the doctor said. The doctor said that you have this diagnosis. They're going online now and, you know, looking it up. They're they're trying to be more active in their health care. Or some of them come in and tell you what's wrong with them because they're they're what I call the WebMD patients. They come in and they like, I'm presenting these symptoms and according to WebMD, this is what I have, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think patients are just becoming more active and they're demanding more information now.
5: Yeah, but we're still having issues with uh, patients who may not, um, say they have a blood pressure medication mm-hmm. and they're not regularly taking it. And they come in complaining because they're short of breath right. or they're having chest pain and right. related to their heart and they're saying the blood pressure is not... My heart, but you're saying it. Right. the blood, high blood pressure is what's causing your heart problems.
0: Informing them in compliance to total different animals. Mm-hmm. You can tell a patient that this is a necessity and this is what this does. You can keep hammering that into them, but some people just aren't medication-based patients. Like, some people just don't like to take pills, period. Mm-hmm. You know, and to feel like I have to take them every day, they, don't, they just don't want to do it. Or you have patients that feel like I took it for the first 30 days, I'm better now. I don't have to take it anymore because I feel better. And then they start to feel bad again. They come in because they feel like, oh, it's something else going on. I took that medicine you gave me, I got better. So now something else is wrong. When in fact, the medication, you have to keep taking it. It's not taken until you feel like you're getting some relief. It's a continuous thing to keep these things Leveled, so you won't feel those effects again. So I think you can still inform them, but you can't make them do it. And and then understand the difference between I feel better today and this is a long-term process is, is still something that we have to work on.
3: I think that also points to the distrust that people have with the medical field as well, especially as seen with um, Henrietta Lacks mm-hmm. with, you know, People don't trust medicine. They don't trust doctors that what they're telling them is true or that everything that they're saying is 100% genuine for reasons that we've seen in the past. Um, And that's a valid reason. We just have to figure out how we're going to get our patients to um, trust us and really take their health as their priority.
0: And I agree with that, and I find that with um, some of the older generation patients would that feel like well my mother lived to be 99 years old and she didn't take any medications so why how are you telling me that you want me you just trying to make money that's the big thing in the older generation I hear that a lot you know and I respectfully I smile at the patients mm-hmm. like I understand what you're what you're saying but this is a different day and time food you know, it's different than it was when your mother was living to be 99. There are a lot more pesticides and things used, which affects, you know, different your blood levels and stuff like that, too. But, but it's hormones and antibiotics presented in your meat sources now that never was. So now we have all these, you know, um, antibiotic resistant bacteria coming. I'm like, life is different now. And, like you said, that's just something we continuously have to work in is trying to get that trust and them knowing the difference between. What it was like back then, what it's like now, and that the doctor isn't just out for your insurance and for your money, that we're really trying to help you.
4: I think something that can get lost in um, the interaction that a patient can have in a doctor is that, you know, both people, both patient and doctor are stakeholders in, in, in health. mean my goal as a future physician is for you to be healthy and happy and productive. Mm-hmm. My goal as a patient is for me to be healthy, happy and productive. We are on the same team. Right. And so I, I, it's something I continuously think about. Um, how, do we, how do we bridge a, the gap that is right. kind of there? You can feel it. Mm-hmm. How do we get back on the same team? Well, I
2: and think you just got to let everybody, I know it's important to everybody that, you know, the doctors, patients, and medical professionals work together because, you know, we want all of us want something to benefit all of us. I mean, a cure to benefit all of us. So in order to get that cure, the doctors and the patients and the medical community have to work together. You Like I said, you have to trust your doctor and you have to trust your patient. And though I may say something about the informed consent and um, the different tissue samples and like that, I want the medical community to have that tissue sample mm-hmm. so they could perform tests and do whatever they need to do to, um, like I said, come up with a cure to help everybody. That is important. We just got to tell everybody that, look, we have to work together. Right. Of course, there's going to be information out there that you don't like. It's going to be stuff that you do like, but in order for us to advance and get together, together we all have to work together.
0: And I think that uh, patients' uh, interactions with doctors, they clump them together. That's just realistic, mm-hmm. you know. You you may have seen eight great doctors, but that one that one doctor that just was so cold really set it. It pushed out all those other good doctors. It pushed that out. All you remember now is that one doctor that was just so cold to you, and he told you to take this treatment, this medication, and it made you worse. or so, you know that that's another thing that that is holding. I feel a lot of trust issues back in medicine because you can have hundreds of thousands of great doctors out there, but it only takes that one to set that memory so firm in a patient that makes them distrust the whole medical community. And they they resort to just their own devices, their old family home remedies that they felt were all those years ago. I think that that is another thing that's prevalent in in patients trusting and also the cohesion there's a lack of cohesion and the conversations being had sometimes in medicine so you had this one doctor that told you this and you go so see another doctor because and they told you this but then you're like well my other doctor told me that we don't have uh, it's still a disconnect within the medical community where we, mm-hmm. you know with communicate with one another with about the patient like we have this mutual patient This is, you know, I saw Mrs. Johnson today, and this is what she presented with me, and this is what I told her. You know, you've seen her previous to that. What did you find coming together to, you know, be on the same page? So when we're having these conversations with the patients, we don't look like I'm saying that you're a liar and you're saying that I'm a liar. Because then that creates you know chaos amongst us and then the patient like who do I trust? Do I trust you or do I trust him? Or do I just not do anything because I don't know which one of you I can trust you know? There
4: Mm. are many moving parts yeah to Mm -hmm. healthcare not just patients but patients wanting to know like they they access WebMD WebMD or other online resources Mm -hmm. and now they're informed and that being informed is a a good thing wouldn't want to tell a patient not to be informed but then there are multiple physicians that they have Mm -hmm. other healthcare providers, nurses, PAs How do we all get on, you know, the same side again? So speaking of being informed, um, there's a
3: program that's available for pretty much the population, which is called, like, 23andMe. Have you guys heard about it? Yes. Uh, Right, so I'm kind of contemplating whether or not I want to do it. Um, A lot of our classmates have actually done it.
1: So this is the... If I sequence. remember this is that you can get your genetic sequence. Yes. Not
3: the whole sequence. Right. They look for certain genes, eye color. They, right. they can trace you back, your family back to where they're from, ancestry. Mm-hmm. They can look at if you're predisposed to, like, diabetes or hypertension mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think you guys might not have had that option just in the sense that um, Mrs. Henrietta Lox's, um DNA was sequenced right. without her permission right. and without your permission. but. Would you have done it anyway? Do you think that that's an important thing? Like, what was your reaction um, when you learned about her genome? And-
0: well, when I learned about her genome, I was like, there we go again. Mm-hmm. Something else that has been done, and I, we didn't know about it prior to it. But then again, you have to think about, in the scientific community, the cell is so given that they... I'm, it wasn't malicious in intent. You know, they mm-hmm. know the cell was open for anybody to use so they use it to how they saw fit um, Sure, and
1: probably the cell is not the person right the right connect. exactly
0: that's the the mindset right. it is the cell it is not the person it's not the family they didn't think of you know about that about because some, that truthfully some scientists or researchers are not they don't think about the people they just think about the science like that is just what it is mm-hmm. so I mean but once I Learned about and everything I'm like, whoo! technology and science Has really progressed so much And I don't know That if I was asked To have my genome sequenced If I would do it You know, that was the first reaction But then I thought about it like You know what, I would do it Because at the end of the day If I can prevent, if you can tell me I'm predisposed for X, Y, and Z And these I know that there are things out there That I can do to prevent them I would be open to that, but we have to realize that you have to treat patients how they want to be treated not how you want to be treated. Everybody's not open to knowing ahead of time that mm-hmm. you are predisposed for cancer. Mm-hmm. People can't you're not ready to access to, to really process. have process that information. You know what I mean They're, you're just not ready. Some things is just too real for you right now, and I'm not ready for it. So I don't think it's something for everybody. But for me, I would have done. I will do it. You know, I would do it. I would like to know if I'm predisposed for certain things that I can help.
2: Um, Actually, we had a whole conversation at my NIH meeting about 23andMe and and genetic sequence. See, the problem is, like I had alluded to earlier, we're in an early stage of genomic medicine. So the best markers are really your genetic, um, your family traits, the um, your family history if your family have cancer if your family have diabetes because like i said we they're still aligning and they really don't know that much i mean they learn a whole bunch but they don't know that much about it so if you get it and say that you um going to have this disease or had that disease they honestly don't know they say it is the best thing is to look at your family history because um all right, we know the BRCA gene, one that's prevalent for uh, causing um, breast cancer, and ovarian cancer, and Angelina Jolie had her ovaries and um, what's name move. But the thing is, if you look at her family, you can see that even before the genetic traits, her aunt had it, her mother had it. her right. So many members right. of her family had it that it was already in there that she would have that um, trait, and she was at a high risk. So it's like you get your sequence but it really can't tell you nothing because it's so much that plays a part in what happens okay. to you. It's, yes, your genome plays a part, but it's also your environment. Mm-hmm. And it's also your family history. It's just not one thing. Like I said, we had at the early stages. So the stuff you learn at 23andMe or sequencing um, genetics, it's still in the early stage. So like I said, Vicky said, some people are not ready there because we said we was talking about a doctor who said he's going to, uh, he's at high risk for Parkinson's disease, so now he's changed his whole diet. But it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to get Parkinson's right, disease. Right. It doesn't mean he has the trait.
0: They're just saying yeah. that it's a possibility exactly. that these can things can so occur. So, it's right
2: now, we're yeah. still at the early stage of it. So, if you get it done, just realize what context is it in And we're in an early stage of, of genomic medicine. So, actually knowing it... Um, Sure, I mean, because I really don't care. They say it could say whatever they want to say. It's like, yeah, whatever. There's right. a chance that I die in a plane crash tomorrow too. So, what hey, really? Hey, I
0: have to. We have to fly out tomorrow. Can you not do yeah. that oh, okay. I nice one. <laughs> you know.
1: Listen, I want to. I want to thank you guys for coming today. Uh, Victoria Baptiste and David Lax, thank you so much oh, for joining okay. us and for having thank this you. conversation thank with us. us. It's, it's thank been you. really, thank you, it's guys. It's been really for terrific. Oh, okay, thank you. The Short is produced by the Writing and Humanities Program at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine with support from medical student government. You can visit us online at theshortcoat.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, too, where we uh, post not only our episodes, but news and info for medical students. We take comments and story ideas from you, our listeners, via email at theshortcoats at gmail.com, Or leave us a voice message at 347-SHORT-CT. That's 347-746-7828. The producers are Jason T. Lewis and David T. Etler. Our opening music is by Dude Skywalker. And our closing theme music is by Revolution Void. Thanks for listening.